Today we're launching this new series, the series that we've called Unsung Heroes, and it's a great series to come on the backside of, of what we just came through as we studied through and talked about uh, everyday saints. But the idea here is, is that the Bible is full of, of characters and people in, that we have talked about, that we have taught about their, their stories to our kids. So you think about it, people like Moses or, or David or Paul or Abraham, right? We, we use those stories in Sunday school. We use them in our own lives as inspiration. But the truth of the matter is sometimes it's hard for us to relate to our lives being anything like Moses' life or King David's life, right? It's a whole different, for most of us, maybe some of you have a similar sort of calling, and you're a king, but I don't know that. So I would assume, for most of us, we, we read those stories, and there's really only going to be one Moses, right, who leads the people. And so sometimes they're hard to relate to. So what we thought we would do is go back and, and look at the scriptures and find those people who maybe you've never even heard of. I think the two individuals we're going to talk about today, I think if I were to do a quiz and just tell you their names, uh, most of us would probably say, I don't know who that is. So these are what I would just call the unsung heroes. But the, in, the interesting thing is when you start to sink into the stories, you realize that these are more of the ordinary folk, more like you and I, but yet they had this tremendous impact on the story that God is writing. And so what my hope is that two things would come out of this series, that we would uh, grow in our biblical literacy, right? We would understand more about the Bible. We'd look at some stories that maybe have been uh, overlooked uh, in the past, and so we would know more about the scriptures. But I think uh, it'll also serve to inspire us that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God desires for you to have a heroic sort of faith and to impact him. You know, God is still writing his story. We are still a part of the same story that Moses and David and Abraham was a part of, but all of those lesser known characters as well. So that's kind of the, the framework of the stories that we're going to go after here for the next several weeks. And I just encourage you to keep coming on the weekend and uh, get all of these because I think it'll be helpful for you. So grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going to start with a story that happens in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, chapter one. Exodus chapter one, we're gonna start reading in verse 15, but what I wanna do is sort of set the scene so that you can visualize what's going on. The, the vast majority of the Israelites at this time in history live in Egypt, and one would ask themselves, why do they, they live in Egypt? But you have to go back to the story of Joseph. If you remember, Joseph's brothers were jealous of him and they sold him into slavery, where the people that bought him, if you will, to, to make him a slave were Egyptian. So Joseph is taken as a slave to Egypt. And if you remember the story, he, he ends up falling into false accusations, ends up being in prison for a rather lengthy period of time. And then through just a series of events, if you read that story, it just almost seems like one day he's a prisoner and the next day he's second in command of all of Egypt. He interprets a dream for the king and, and the king is so impressed with him that the king puts him right under him and tells him to, to lead the country. And so what's gonna happen is the country's gonna go into this really uh, awful famine and Joseph knows it because he interprets the dream. So he leads Egypt through what would have been just this devastating famine, right? And so he becomes somewhat uh, renowned and, and loved because of what he did. But the famine was so widespread that it affected other areas as well. And, and it was so bad that Joseph's brothers had to come to Egypt basically to look for assistance, we're, gonna, we're not going to make it. We're not gonna, we don't have everything we need. So the only place that had food was Egypt because of what Joseph did. So his, his brothers come and, and they meet Joseph. And it's a whole other story that we could preach on in another day. But in the long run, they move to Egypt, right? And so what you need to know is when they move to Egypt, 
they were really renowned. The family was well cared for. They were given land. They were given areas to live. They, weren't, they didn't come as slaves at that point. They were very much a part of the social structure, and they were welcomed in. Well, now we have all of Joseph's brothers, his, his extended family, and they're, they're growing. And 400 years have passed, and nobody remembers Joseph and the story of Joseph. All they know is that there are all of these Israelites that live in Egypt. As a matter of fact, the passages, if you go back before that, say that the, they grew in numbers and they grew in strength. And it was so much so that the Egyptian king or the pharaoh, so those are going to be interchangeable as we talk today. If I say king, I'm talking about the pharaoh. And if I say pharaoh, I'm talking about the king, same person. And you'll see that when you read the story as well. But he becomes fearful of these people that are not part of his own clan, if you will, and he begins to worry. And what people do when they're in fear is they ramp up the oppression. So that's what the king does. He begins to ramp up his oppression of these people, and that's part of the story they're saying. But the passage before that says, the more he oppressed them, the more they multiplied and grew in strength. So it's just he was compounding the problem and, and getting worse and worse, okay? So that's where we pick up the story. 400 years, most of the Israelites live in, in this place called Egypt. They've grown in numbers. It says that they've spread throughout the entire land, okay? So that's where we are. Exodus 1, verse 15. It says, then the king of Egypt, or Pharaoh, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them named Sapphira, Sapphira sorry, and the other Poe, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, it, if, it, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives come to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to a Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. This becomes the precursor to what we know of the story of Moses. If you remember, the, the boys were being killed and then mom didn't want Moses to be killed. So this is to set up that part of the story, but we're gonna stay with what we just read. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we unpack this story of these two heroic women, I pray that you would use it to uh, inspire us. I think this is one of the uh, most difficult, complicated sermons I've ever preached uh, so I pray that you would give us ears to hear, that you would help us to understand this, this very complicated topic that we're going to talk about. So Lord, just soften our hearts, open our, our, our souls to uh, receive the seeds of truth that you want for us. And I pray, Lord, I just pray that as we move through this series, that you would inspire us to be heroes. Not so that we can get accolades, but because we want to just participate in, in your kingdom in a powerful way. Jesus' name, amen. 
So the heroes today are these two women. We don't have one hero, but we have two. And, and what you can first take away from this is they're pretty ordinary people, right? They have an ordinary job. They're, they're midwives. They're not wealthy. They're not influential. They're not royalty. We don't even know if they were Israelites or if they were Egyptian. No one can figure that out from their names, so it doesn't really matter. What we do know is they're just pretty ordinary folks with ordinary jobs. And so that serves, again, to help us to realize that God uses ordinary people. So, so this, these two women, they're, they're told, kill every baby. When I started reading this, or kill every baby boy, when I started reading this and studying it, the first thing I thought of is, why the boys? Like, why would Pharaoh tell them to kill the boys? Because the truth of the matter, if you really wanted to affect the population, you would take out the women. If you were a wildlife biologist, and I don't want to compare the two, I know it's very different, so I'm not trying to be insensitive, but if you want to control the size of a, the whitetail herd or the elk herd in Colorado, you don't take out the bulls, you take out the cows, because the bulls can mate with lots of cows, but cows can only have one, and that's how you affect the population. When you start to take the, the, the females out of the population, the population will shrink. So, so the first thing I asked myself is, why would he go after the boys and not the girls? And it became pretty quick that it, I kind of realized, because he could still use the girls. Unfortunately, he could use them for sex, right? They would still bear children, but they would be seated, if you will, by the Egyptian men. It actually just becomes more insidious and more impressive when you start to sink into that. It's a, it's a whole different level of oppression and, and, and use. And it. so it just, it just adds to just how oppressive the story really is, right? So, so he goes, says, kill all the, the boys, but the midwives say no. And I just want you to catch this, and I think you probably all already know it, but they're saying no was really signing their own death warrant, right? They, they're, they're, you really don't say no to the king. You don't say no to the pharaoh, especially something, he's not asking for a burger here. This is a big request. And so for, you, for them to say no, they had to know within their own spirit that this is going to cost us a lot, right? This is going to cost us something, and so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that gave them the courage? What is it that inspired them? What is it that allowed them to make such a brave decision? And just, just trust me, this is so brave for them to do it. And I think the clue to that is found in verse 17. It says, but the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. So they know that they're accountable to the king. Right? They know that they're going to be risen in their lives, but they also know they, they are accountable to God. And so they had to weigh, who am I more worried about how they feel about my behavior, the king or God himself? Which one am I more accountable to? And it's a, it's a good place for us just to stop and, and ponder our own sort of, of loyalty, if you will. The midwives feared God. And this is what I want to talk about for the major part of the sermon, because I think this is very, very difficult. As I said when I was praying, I think even my reaction from last night kind of proves uh, that, that this is a complicated subject. What does it mean to fear God? When I was in junior high, I was part of a youth group, and uh, the pastor, the youth pastor asked me if I would teach, and he said I could teach anything I wanted, and so I decided to teach on the fear of God. I have no idea why. My guess is because I didn't understand it, I wanted to understand it more, so I taught on the fear of God, and I can't remember any of the content, but I do remember vividly that at the end of teaching it, I was more confused than when I started, which tells me it probably wasn't very effective for any of the kids in the room, but it stuck with me that this idea of fear of God, it's complicated, it's confusing, it's, it's really hard to wrap our minds around. After all, God is love, right? 
God is gracious, abounding in love, steadfast. He's, he's merciful. He's our Abba Father. He, he knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows every hair on our head. I mean, I mean God is love. And the scriptures actually say perfect love, which is God, casts out all fear. And so you have this on one hand, but you cannot read the scriptures without seeing fear of God. It starts in the beginning. It starts all the way through the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. There's this, this thread that runs through it that there's something that we are supposed to have that is a healthy fear of God. And so it just, it becomes very contentious, even in our own spirit, to figure out how do I balance these two things? And that's what I wanna kinda focus in on for a few minutes. So 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says these words. It says, since we have these promises, beloveds, let us cleanse ourselves from every, uh, sorry, defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So this one passage has both of those. It has this, all of these promises, this is all that you know of who God is and all God has promised to do for you. And, and all of, I mean, the Bible is full of promises. If you just Googled how many promises are in the Bible, you'll get thousands of them. And, and everybody says it's different, so I don't know which number is right, but it's thousands. So you have all of these promises, but in the middle of that, it says, cleanse yourself from sin is what it's getting at here and do it in the fear of God. So we can say, well, I don't like fear of God talk. I'm just gonna stay with one. But the truth is we're not being true to the scriptures if we don't at least give voice to or ponder what does it mean to fear God, right? I think at first glance they feel like they're, they're, they're at odds with each other. But what I'm hoping you can see is that they're not. Some people, uh, I think, uh, in, a, in a desire, in a good desire to help us get it, some people would say, well, fear of God is just reverence. Right? If you just have reverence, then you have fear of God. And the truth of the matter is, there is a Hebrew word for reverence, and it's not the same word as fear. And there's a Greek word for reverence, and it's not the same word as fear. So they're not using the word reverence here. They're using the word fear. Actually, the word, and I, and I know this is where it gets confused, the word actually means terror. Right? And so then you're just like, what? Like how God is love and, and fear, and it's just all of a sudden these two things collide. I think one of the things that's helpful here, uh, for me anyway, as I, as I walk through this, is uh, the great reformer Luther uh, wrote on this, and he, he kind of begins to explain these two words. And the more I've sat with these, these two types of fear, the more I've began to understand what it is that the scriptures are asking for. The two types of, of fear, servile, S-E-R-V-I-L-E, and filial fear. So the first one is servile fear is the fear that one would have under the hands of an oppressor. It's the kind of fear that Pharaoh was trying to uh, uh, press into and to get the, the, the Israelites to feel. Anytime someone is, is oppressed or abused, they would have this kind of fear. I think one of the ways you could get to understand this kind of fear is anyone who lives in an abusive home whether it's a child or a spouse, and they live with this, this cowering fear that they're gonna say the wrong thing, they're gonna, they may not even say this, something's gonna snap somewhere in my mouth and I'm gonna receive a beating, right? That's that fear, like it, it's just gonna come, I don't know how, I don't know where, and so you begin, it, it's kind of marked even by a, 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 a broken spirit, a lack of self-worth, just, it, it's something very different than what the scriptures is calling us to. 
And I actually think it doesn't have to be on this grand of a scale where it's physical abuse. It could even just be that feeling that you're never gonna measure up in your, in your home. You could have a fear that you, from, about your boss that it doesn't matter what I do, he's always gonna be displeased with me anyway. It's a different sort of, of fear, right? And it's, it's, it's just, it, it, it permeates who you are and it drives you down. Right, And I think at some level, and this is where it gets hard in some ways, I think at some level we all have some of this fear even towards God. If we, if we unpack it, if we listen, like it's the fear that, that, that we're going to disappoint God. For, and it doesn't always come from the right places, and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit in a minute. Right, But then there is this other kind of fear, this servile fear, right? And this is also the, or the filial fear. This is actually taken from the Latin word that we get family from. Uh, interestingly enough, I use family as, a, as the illustration for this one, but this would be in a healthy family, in a family where uh, both discipline and love are, are done in balance and they're done correctly. You know, discipline is not a bad thing, right? We, discipline is a part of, of if you want to raise kids and you think you can do it with no discipline at all, uh, you're going to be surprised along the way that it doesn't really work, right? So there does have to be like this navigating both discipline and love. And if you were to do it in a perfect way, then you would begin to foster this filial sort of fear, right? And so this is characterized by a healthy respect for a father or mother. It's deep down a strong desire to please and honor them. The key words is deep down, a strong desire to please and honor them. It's not about being afraid of the hammer coming down. It's about knowing how much your father, your mother loves you, knowing how much they've cared for you and desiring to do what's right so that it's, it's honoring and pleasing to them. Look, I gotta tell you, I, I don't mind if that's how my kids respond. If, far, if sometimes they're looking at making a bad decision and they say to themselves, you know what? I don't want to do that because I, I just, I know that's not what my dad would want. Like, that's okay. You know, that's okay. You, you know, that's okay, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's, that's where we're going. Now here's the problem. Our image of God is always rooted in our experience with our earthly father. Mothers a little bit, but more so with fathers. It's a, it's a cosmic thing, and I, it's just the way God has ordained it. But whatever your experience it was with your dad has shaped your image of God. So chances are, unless you had a perfect father, which I don't think any of us did, there is th this whole thing gets complicated because we don't know how to, to fear God well because our image of God is shaped by our experience with our earthly father. So if your father was never around, right, your image of God is he's never going to be around. If, you're, if your father was unpredictable, and sometimes it was great, but sometimes you didn't even know why, but you were at the end of a, a, a rage, right, then you're always going to be wondering, when is God going to be unpredictable? When is he going to rage on me, right? And it doesn't have to stay that way. As we sink into the scriptures, as we, as we sit and learn who God really is, we can reshape our image of God. But your initial image of God is always, always, always shaped by whatever your experience is with your father. I had a conversation with a young woman after the service last night and with just you know, kind of tears in her eyes, she just said, um, well, I never knew my dad. He just was never there. I said, well, do you ever have a sense that God is not there for you? Yeah, I do. Right? Her image of God was shaped by the fact. So it doesn't even have to be because your dad did something. It could be because he never did anything. 
that is still shaped by that. So I just want you to hang on to that because if we don't have a, a right view of God, then we can't have a healthy fear of God, right? It, it gets this whole thing so convoluted so quickly, right? So John Calvin says these words. He says, nearly all wisdom which we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves, there is this journey that we need to go on to know more of who God really is. And as we understand who God is more, and then we begin to understand who we are more. But as we begin to understand who we are, it's easier for us to understand who God is. And, and why am I saying all this? Because you cannot have a healthy, filial fear of God until you do that good soul work and know who God really is. So what is fear of God? How would we define fear of God? It is a wholesome fear Keyword here is wholesome, wholesome fear of displeasing God. Now it's just got crazy more complicated because some of you are hearing me say that you have to do something for God to love you. God already loves you. God is delighted in you. God is, is he, he dances over you, but you know you can displease him. You know that you can behave in such a way that it causes God to grieve your behavior. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you anymore. Doesn't mean he doesn't pursue you. It doesn't mean he didn't send his son to die for that very behavior. It doesn't mean that, that his mercy isn't new every morning, but you have the ability to displease God by your behavior. And, and sometimes we don't like to talk about this because it feels so... I don't know. So you come out of a legalistic background, it feels like we're going back to that. But the truth is, if you live in this place where everything is about grace and there is no discipline, that creates its own set of problems too. There is this very delicate balance that the scriptures are calling us to where we walk in. And so the, it's a wholesome, wholesome, keyword is wholesome fear of God. Not the fire and brimstone things that we were, we were talking about in the baptism sermon, okay? It's not that. It's a wholesome Fear of God. So these two women, Sapphira and Poe, right? They're, they're heroes because they had a healthy, wholesome fear of God, fear of displeasing God. They were more concerned with pleasing God, not to earn something from God, but doing what would please God than doing what would please Pharaoh. And so they were willing to risk their lives. So here's the interesting thing. I think as you step into a life of discipline, like a life of doing the right thing before God, when you know what God wants you to do and you're willing to do it, even if you don't know God all that well yet, if you're just a new believer, your acts of discipline will actually help you to know God more. So Proverbs, the most famous verse on fear of God, right? If I were to say what verse do you know about fear of God, you probably, most of you, or maybe a lot of you would know this verse, but it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fear of the Lord is just the beginning. It's the beginning of our journey with God. So what happens is as we begin to do what's right and we begin to not purposefully step into sinful behavior, you know that God blesses those who pursue him and you can't pursue sin and pursue God at the same time. So as you begin to make the right decisions and, and, and have a healthy understanding of a desire to please God and, and do what's right, you begin to learn that, that God wants to bless you, right? You begin to learn that God's rules aren't there to oppress you, but they're, they're there to liberate you. 
right? They're there to help you to navigate life in a way that's, that's more fruitful. It's not, a, it's not an oppression thing. It's actually a freedom thing. So it starts with sometimes with just being obedient and discovering that God is good. God's ways are better than my ways. Oh, God actually knows what's good for me. Like if I listen to God and I do what he says, things tend to go better for me. When I take matters into my own hands, sometimes things get a little quanky quick, right? You begin to discover God is good. And guess what? That helps to instill in you this wholesome fear, this wholesome fear of displeasing God because you, you want God's blessing. You want the intimacy that you have with God. You don't want to do anything to disrupt that intimacy. Fear of the Lord is just the beginning of discovering who God really is. And then the passage goes on, says knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The more you know God, the more you have this wholesome understanding of who he is. So we asked the question, what is it that allowed these two women to be so brave as they navigated this challenge? And one was that they feared God. But I think the second thing, which is easy to miss if you don't step back from it and look at it, is they had one another. They had community. I think the fact that both of them uh, had the opportunity to decide together that they were going to do this gave them courage for one another. I think it's possible that if they had been alone, it would have been a much harder decision. But the fact that they had each other, the fact that they had community, we say it to you all the time, you cannot navigate your Christian faith alone. You cannot do it. You have to be in a place where you have people that you're making decisions with, that you're bouncing decisions off to, that you're praying with, that are helping you navigate. That's why it's so important as we bring up all those small group leaders that you find one of those small groups and you plug into because community matters. It helps us to do the right thing as we walk out our faith with God. So let's go back and see how the story plays out and just see what God has for us. So the king is not happy with the midwives. So verse 18, he says to him, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives say, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian woman. They're vigorous. They give birth before the midwives come to them. They lie. Um, at least they're not being completely honest because it's pretty clear from the passage that they didn't kill the boys. It doesn't say they never had an opportunity. They just didn't. So they, they, they tell a fib there, right? And then verse 20, I love this. And it says, so God dealt well with the midwives. Uh, when I read this this week as I was putting together the sermon, uh, I stopped right here and I just read, so God dealt. And it just was sort of like, man, God deals with us. God is actively involved in our lives. My desire is that God would deal well with me, that I wouldn't have to come under his discipline because I've not lived in the way that he's called me to live or I've made a decision that is destructive to my family or to the church or whatever it is. I want it, I want it to be written so God dealt well with, Doug, look, I know my eternity is secure but I also know that I have the ability to displease God today. I could go make a decision right now that is harmful to the kingdom, right? That brings havoc to my family, right? We could do that, but, but this is such a powerful thing. So God dealt well. You are in a relationship with God. How you behave matters. And again, I know this is complicated. There's some of you that just can't stand what I'm saying today. You, you want to just see it all as grace and all as that. 
but then we're not being fair to the scriptures because fear of God is throughout the scriptures. This relationship of, of us coming to God and not wanting to displease him is huge. Now here's what I want you to hear. When you do step out of line, God's grace is there for you. God's mercy is new every morning. There is nothing that you've done or could do that is greater than the cross, right? Nothing that, that, that's out there. So you have, you have the opportunity to, 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 to bring those things to God and say, God, I'm sorry, and God will deal well with you. He's already said, I, look, I've already gone ahead. I, I've made a way. I, I've forgiven you if you just give it to me. So God dealt well with the midwives. When I was uh, just a little kid, we lived in Florida. Uh, last night I said I lived with my family when I was seven, which I think most people would probably know that because not a lot of seven-year-olds live on their own. I lived with my family when I was seven, too. Um, and we lived in Boca Raton, Florida, and uh, sometimes they would launch rockets from Cape Canaveral, and we could w watch the lock rockets go up. And we didn't know they were launching a rocket this particular night, but we were all outside. And when this rocket began to leave the Earth's atmosphere, it blew up. And when it blew up, it created this... Uh, like rings going across the sky, like if you were to throw a pebble in a pond, you know how the rings just keep getting bigger and bigger, but they're smaller ones. And each ring was just a bright color. And so uh, you can imagine the entire sky was just full of these bright colored rings. And uh, it was both beautiful and terrifying because you had no idea what it was. And my mom in her uh, wisdom uh, said, I think Jesus is coming back because the Bible says, that there'll be wonders and signs in the sky, and I'm seven or eight, and I just, I was terrified. I was terrified, and I just kept crying, I'm not ready. I'm not ready, but I'm not ready. It kind of became a defining moment in my life that, that I, just, I just want to be ready. I just want to be able to say, like, if Jesus comes back, I, I've lived my life as, as best I can before him. I want him to say, well done my good and faithful servant. And some of you know, even as you say, and here's what I want you to hear. This feels like a day-by-day -day thing for me. There are days when I know, man, hope you don't come back right now because I'm not in a good place right now. Whatever it is, right? <laughs> I'm just telling you. So I'm not saying it's just, it, but man, don't we want to be in that place where we can just say, God, I, and look, yes. my point is just, that's a wholesome desire to please God. I just want to live right before God. I just want you to have a desire to live right before God so that, so that he can bless you, so that he can walk with you in, in community, and, and so you're just not sabotaging the very thing that God wants to do in your life. I want you to look at verse 21, because I think this is great. So then because the midwives feared God, because they did the right thing, he gave them families. Almost every scholar would agree uh, that these women were probably barren, unable to have kids, uh, which I think makes what they did even more profound. Uh, they could have very easily been embittered towards God. They live in a society where not being able to bear children uh, really makes you disposable in some ways. It just, you know, I think that still exists in some ways in our society, but not at the same level. Uh, but just the fact that, that these women were not able to, to give their husbands heirs and they had to bring babies into the world every day must have just been a heartache for them. If you can't have a baby yet you're in this place day by day seeing birth happen, it must have just been a heartache for them. And, and I just think as I read the story how easy it would have been for them to, 
to not fear God, but to be embittered towards God. They could have even said, look, I can't have kids. Why should they have kids? Right? They could have gone all kinds of places, but they didn't. They feared God, and God gives them a family. God blesses them. They feared God, so they did what was right. They risked their lives, and here we are 3,000-plus years later talking about them. They're heroes, maybe unsung heroes, but heroes nonetheless, just ordinary people who live heroic lives. And I hope that as we talk about them and, and others, that you're motivated to do the same. I would ask that you just ponder their story and reflect on what God wants to show you from these two heroic women. I want to close the service by just um, asking a couple questions. Actually, I have three. And I'm just going to give you a minute to, to think about the answer. These are questions you could take with you. These are questions you could talk about in your D group, in your C group. Uh, when you meet together. But the first question I would ask is, how might your experience with your earthly father have given shape to your image of God? I think sometimes we, we don't want to talk about this question because we think we're not honoring our parents. Um, that was my problem. I, my, my parents were really first-generation Christians, and they gave me Jesus. And I don't know that I could ask them for anything more than that, right? That's a pretty big gift um, but my dad's never had a conversation with me in my life of meaning. He's never asked me a question about my heart. He's never uh, given me direction. He's never talked to me about college or my work. Uh, he just is pretty much a silent man who loves Jesus. And I love him, and I'm grateful for the fact that he loves Jesus. But for me, God is always silent. I have to remind myself, wait a minute, God wants to talk to me. Right? My image of God is shaped by my earthly father, and I love my dad, and I can honor my dad and, and still see the truth. And I say this to all the time, look, I, I'm not a perfect dad. My kids need to work through the same thing. Where did I mess up and give them a bad image of who God really is? Doesn't mean I didn't love them. Doesn't mean I didn't do the best I could. Doesn't mean they can't honor me. So just be willing to go to the question and don't feel guilty. Like sometimes we just want to say, oh, he did the best he could. Yep, that's okay. Well, sometimes he didn't, but you know what I'm saying, Okay. So how might your experience with your earthly father given shape to your image of God? Second question is, do you feel like you have a wholesome, keyword is wholesome, fear of displeasing God? Coming from the right place, based on an earnest desire to, to walk in God's grace and his mercy and to do what's right before him. And then the last question is, where do you think God is calling you to be brave? What's the brave conversation he wants you to have this week? What's the decision you know he's been pressing on you and you just haven't wanted to make it? Where is God calling you to be brave? Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for these two heroic women and I thank you for their story. I thank you for your scriptures. And even today, when we have to tackle a complicated subject like fear of God, I, I pray again that you would just go before us, that you would smooth out the, the wrinkles of what I'm trying to teach. It's a complicated, difficult subject, but that you would allow us to, to just have this wholesome, beautiful, Abba Father respect for you. We would never question that you love us beyond our wildest imagination with an unfailing love. And may that motivate us to do what's right because we love you back. 
Jesus said, if you love me, you'd obey me. So may our movement in life be motivated by just our understanding of how much you love each one of us. Jesus' name, amen. Hey, there's a, a group of people that gather before the service and pray for you, and uh, they listen for uh, what the Lord might want to say to you, and uh, I just want to share with you some of what they heard. One of the things that was heard is that some, some of you just need to hear, ask me. So you're worried about a decision, you're worried about something that's in front of you, and the Lord is just inviting you to bring him into the decision. Ask the Lord. He wants to speak to you. Uh, There's someone in here that's just really consumed with fear and worry and despair. Um, The one that really jumped off the page to me that I just want to make sure we talk about is that there's somebody who's stressed out about school, maybe even to the point of thinking about suicide. And if that's you, I would just encourage you, don't leave this room without coming down here and allowing us to pray with and for you. Don't let the stress of school uh, get to you, but if you're just stressed out of school in general, we'd love to pray over you. And somebody heard the word taxes. Some of you are struggling uh, with something about taxes, and we'd be happy to pray with you. If you have a physical need, spiritual need, emotional need, uh, the people down here would love to pray for you. And we're just glad that you're here. Have a great Sunday afternoon. Bless you. in my mind that say I'm not enough Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up Am I more than just the sum of every heart